At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the worst hurricane in recent history to hit the Tampa Bay area. It was called the Tarpon Springs Hurricane, and after the eyewall hit that sponge-diving town at 115 miles an hour, inflicted unimaginable damage on what was still then an area populated mostly by orange groves and ranches. It caused eight deaths and $10 million in damages, which is equivalent to about $120 million today. In just a bit, we'll talk to Craig Fugate, former administrator of FEMA and director of Florida's emergency management system, through some of the worst hurricanes to strike the state this century. But first, we'll take a look back in time over Zoom with Brad Massey. He's the Saunders Foundation Curator of Public History at the Tampa Bay History Center. Let's take a trip into the Wayback Machine to 1921. There really wasn't any kind of mass communications besides newspapers and magazines. Radio was just getting started. So did anybody really know that this major storm was about to hit? Yeah, they actually did. Um, It was reported that there was a storm basically north of Panama. And um, there was something called the U.S. Weather Bureau at the time, and they had started to track these storms. So unlike in the earlier storms, particularly the really nasty 1848 storm, there actually was a heads up. And a few days before the storm hits Tampa, the U.S. Weather Bureau says there's some type of tropical event out there. So there was a heads up. And then a couple days later, and then 24 hours before the storm, the U.S. Weather Bureau said there's actually a hurricane out there and it's coming um, right at y'all. But one of the interesting things was the local papers kind of downplayed it. And they said, oh, they say there's a hurricane out there, but, you know, it all seems fine here. So in short, there was a heads up, but the time frame that you would have back then for a warning was much more contracted than it is now. Yeah, I saw one of the uh, the newspaper clippings from a couple of days or maybe the day before it hit. It says, no storms here. Right. So we're getting conflicting information. And even if you knew a storm was coming, did people really know how to take precautions back then? I mean, it's not like you can hop in your car and head up on I-75 North and get out of Dodge, right? No, it's true. People didn't really know how to take precautions in that there was a lot of kind of boosterism in town and this notion that, well, storms aren't going to hit here. They're not going to be that bad. There was a storm in 1910, um, but the water didn't come up near as high as it did in 1921. And so, you know, there's an old historian named Grismer, and he wrote, you know, only the old timers really could remember the storm of 1848. But there simply isn't a lot of preparation. And we see that, you know, one unfortunate event during the storm is a power line gets knocked down, and then two children go out to kind of pick it up and move it, and they get electrocuted. So, you know, I always think that symbolizes that people know the storm's out there, but they're not really prepared, and they don't really know how to react when it actually gets here. Right. You just mentioned a couple of storms that were decades and maybe even longer than that before this storm hit. So was 1921 kind of like it is now in that we don't really get a lot of storms hit us directly? So people were just kind of, it'll pass over us. We'll get a glancing blow of that sort of thing. And they weren't really paying as much attention as they should have. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. As I was saying, the, the last major storm was in 1848. And, you know, by 1921, we're also experiencing the Florida land boom. You know, people are selling properties a few years after the hurricane. Dave Davis is going to start building Davis Islands just south of downtown. And so there's this boosterism. And one of the, the mottos of this time is Tampa, the year-round city. So this argument that, oh, the, the weather's good here year-round, everything's great, we haven't been hit with a storm in years. And so, yeah, I think there's this denial because it had been so long since there had been a serious storm. And then all of a sudden in 1921, you have an 11-foot storm surge, um, which reminds people that, you know, things can get really nasty really quick. But yeah, in short, I think there was some denial out there. So Brad, take us back to when the, the storm hit. It was a Category 3 storm, as what would be called a Category 3 today. They didn't really have those those figures back then. Tell us about the damage, where it hit first, and, and then what happened after it came on land. Yeah, so the damage is pretty substantial. So just to go back a little bit further, the storm kind of evolves right off the coast of Panama. It shoots right in between the Yucatan Peninsula and Cuba. And then it'll come into Tampa Bay and hit right around Tarpon Springs. That's where the eye is going to be. And of course, the problem with that is when the eye is north of Tampa Bay, that south and westerly wind just pushes all the water into Tampa Bay. And so you get a 12-foot storm surge, and that's really the big problem with the storm. It's estimated at first that there's about $2 million worth of damage in the, in the Tampa Bay area. A lot of that is businesses along the waterfront. Sotico is a good example, the Tampa Electric Company. Their power lines are damaged. And then at the time, they had a streetcar, the Ballas Point streetcar, that ran all the way down to Ballas Point. People would go down there and picnic. And the tracks of, for that streetcar are destroyed. Some of the cars are actually caught out in the weather, so they're stuck on the tracks. And then, of course, you know, people that have businesses along the wharfs with a 12-foot storm surge, some of these ships are picked up and placed on dock. There's a schooner called the Favorite that basically gets picked up and deposited. Um, so we do see substantial amounts of damage um, from the storm. And, you know, back then we didn't have FEMA or anything like that. Uh, what was the, the reconstruction like? Did it take years and years or people basically left on their own without any kind of communication or electricity or anything? Yeah, it's, it's probably too much to say that people were left on their own. Um, when I think about it, here's, here's a couple good stories to kind of help people understand what the, what the repair situation was like afterwards. The city of Tampa says, we're going to go clear debris. The problem is there wasn't any money um, allotted for that, any type of storm or hurricane cleanup. So they had to take money from a sewer project they were working on, and they had to allocate that to the storm. There also was a leader of a local Boy Scout troop, and he's quoted in the paper as telling Boy Scouts to put their uniforms on and to get out there and help with the hurricane cleanup. And then, of course, you have Tico, which is marshalling its, you know, its resources to go and clean up. So people aren't quite on their own, but at the same time, you know, the city and the state didn't have this apparatus to, you know, put the wheels in motion, help people start repairing. It was more of a piecemeal approach where you had some corporate interests that would do it. You had some government interests like the city of Tampa. And then you had local institutions like the Boy Scouts that put on their uniforms and go and try to help clean up after the hurricane. That's a heck of a way to earn your Eagle badge, right? So these were the, these were the roaring 20s, right? Did the economy help because it was such a, uh, you know, economically buoyant time after the end of World War One and that last pandemic we had. So did that help with the reconstruction effort and people tried to kind of put it out of their mind as soon as they could? 
Oh, definitely. There's there's no doubt about it. You know, in the previous storms, like the 1848 storm, there's only less than a thousand people that live in Tampa. I mean, it, it's a village. In 1921, there's about 50,000 people that live in Tampa. You know, 21% of them are foreign born. This is when Tampa becomes a great immigrant city, right? With the cigar factories and all those things that we think about when we think about Tampa history. And then, you know, we see the development of the suburbs at this time. You know, we see the northern suburbs are starting to get developed. Davis Islands is about to be dredged from the bottom of the bay. So what you had was a lot of investment in town, right? And people like Peter O'Knight, who was the vice president of Tico at the time, and some of these other boosters are going to say, this is just a blip on the radar screen. They're going to take their resources. They're going to say, Tampa's still going to be a great city. We're going to continue to develop it. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, the 1921 hurricanes, a lot different from later hurricanes in the 20s, like the 1926 hurricane and the 1928 hurricanes that really kind of end the Florida land boom. They play a role in ending the Florida land boom. The 21 hurricane is something that because the land boom's getting started and boosters are really, you know, just starting to make money on Florida development, they just push it aside and say, no, no, it's not going to stop development. We're still going to grow Tampa. Florida's still going to grow. And that's exactly what happens. Brad, uh, kind of just wrapping up here, any lessons that we learn maybe either as a society or weather forecasting or emergency preparedness that you can think of that happened because of this storm? One thing we did realize because of this storm and the other ones is that there does need to be more coordinated relief efforts. And so, of course, we see that with FEMA. You know, we see that obviously the city now budgets you know, disaster relief and things like that. I think the story that we haven't learned or the thing that we haven't learned is that building along the water is precarious. And we've continued to do that after the storm. Um, You know, nowadays we build high. So yeah, I think some things we've learned, you know, this notion that we need to be prepared, we need to have monies for cleanup, but other things, you know, we've been a little bit more reluctant to learn uh, those lessons. Hopefully, we'll have learned some lessons from from this storm and from the the more recent storms as well. Brad Massey is the Saunders Foundation Curator of Public History at the Tampa Bay History Center. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up after a short break, we'll talk about the future of how we respond and plan for hurricanes with Craig Fugate. We'll be right back. Now that we've heard about the past, let's discuss the future. Greg Fugate is the former administrator of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency under Barack Obama. Before that, he was Florida's Emergency Management Director. During that time, he oversaw the state's response to Hurricanes Charlie, Francis, Ivan, and Jean in 2004, as well as Dennis, Katrina, and Wilma the following year. Here's to hoping we never have another two years like that. Fugate is now Chief Resilience Officer at One Concern. He joins us from his home in Gainesville. Craig Fugate, welcome to Florida Matters. Paul, thanks for having me. You know, you were here during probably one of the worst stretches of hurricanes that we've ever had in Florida. Do do you ever think it could get worse than that again? I think everybody's going to look back and go, well, four was bad, but then you have Irma, you have Hurricane Michael. Uh, The hurricanes continue, and Our population continues to grow, our vulnerabilities increase. So I don't think that these historical storms are as bad as it can be. And um, just taking the Tampa Bay region, look at the growth that's taken place there and what potentially could happen in a new storm. Right, so um, 
What has changed in the last 20 years to make us all more prepared or maybe even less prepared? It's kind of an open-ended question. Well, I think one thing is new construction. And this goes all the way back to the lessons of Hurricane Andrew and then under Governor Jeb Bush passing a statewide unified building code. And what we know is homes built after about 2002 to 2004 timeframe when the codes were kicking in and then with the updates, those homes generally have performed better in the high wind events than the older construction. And for the Tampa Bay region, that's an area of concern. If you go into St. Pete, you go into Old Town, Tampa, uh, most of the new construction is in the suburbs. And the older construction won't do as good to win. But the other problem, which is uh, worsening for the state, is flooding. And most of our regions are very vulnerable to flooding, both from storm surge, but also from extreme rainfall events that we're seeing in some of these storms that uh, like with Hurricane Harvey, as we saw in Texas, the rainfall, when you're measuring in feet, uh, would also cause huge impacts across the region. And rainfall in particular is a little more long-lasting than just if a hurricane comes whipping through here and trees are down everywhere and you can clear the roads, but the rain tends to hang around a bit. I'm thinking about Houston and what it went through a couple of years ago, and it was weeks, right? The, the people's, people were flooded out of their homes, that sort of thing. So the rain presents a real particular problem, doesn't it? It does. And, and remember, all that water is going to be trying to get to a lower place. So as that rain hits, you know, the Hillsborough River and all the streams and, and tributaries are going to be maxed out from this rain. But a lot of areas don't drain well anyway. And so, you know, we can expect that to occur. And on top of that, this is probably the most uninsured risk most people in the region face. Very few people have flood insurance outside of what they call the special flood risk areas where it's required. And they underestimate their flood risk because they say, well, I've lived here all my life. You know, we haven't ever flooded. Uh, but I would caution people that this is the fastest growing risk we're seeing from the climate signals. And it's the least insured risk. And your homeowner's policy won't protect you against rising waters if you don't have flood insurance. Right. The federal government is in the midst of uh, changing up its policies on uh, the federal flood insurance, which is the biggest insurer of, I believe, of, of flood-prone homes in the country. Do you, do you believe they're on the right path, um, maybe uh, raising rates, making it a little more financially feasible, and also going over the, the risks that are prevalent now? Well, it's something that Congress has been directing for some time is that FEMA needed to move its rates towards more reflective of the risk. And what they found, and this started back when I was still FEMA administrator, is we overcharged some people for flood insurance and we undercharged others. So the new program, Risk 2.0, as with any program, there are what we would call winners and losers. Some people will see their rates go down. Uh, a lot of folks in the Tampa Bay region will see their rates going up but those rates are capped at how much they could increase. And there's a piece of this that Congress still has not addressed. And that is people should be paying their fair share, but there also needs to be an affordability piece addressing fixed income. A lot of people who lived in these communities for a long time, uh, their homes may have appreciated in value, but they're not able to pay the higher rates based upon replacement cost. And so that's still some work that Congress needs to address as the affordability piece. All right, Craig, let's stick with FEMA for a minute here. You directed the agency between 2009 and 2017. It's been criticized lately for reacting slowly in the aftermath of 
been a deluge of recent storms and natural disasters. Do you believe FEMA is stretched too thin? Well, uh, having worked for then Vice President, now President Biden, I can assure you he has a sense of urgency and impatience with bureaucracy to get things done. And the new administrator of FEMA, Deanne Criswell, who uh, worked with me when I was at FEMA, is of the same mindset. So I think there is more emphasis on getting in quickly. I think if you look at the storms that have occurred this year, the criticisms have not been about response, uh, but usually the challenges we still face with recovery with the FEMA programs and sometimes the mismatch on what the needs are of the people and what the programs are authorized to do by Congress. Do you believe it needs more funding or is there anything like that coming down the pipeline to your knowledge? You know, FEMA is well-funded and Congress has, uh, as much as they'll posture, doesn't let FEMA run out of money on disasters. But the programs were designed for middle class. They were designed for a heavy basis of insurance as the primary tool for the public to prepare themselves. It's not addressing what's happening as we see, and this will be another problem that Tampa is going to face, is the amount of affordable housing and rental properties that get wiped out in these disasters and what comes back generally isn't affordable. We've continued to displace people. There's, there's stories about you know the temporary housing that FEMA provides when that runs out, people don't have options. And Congress never really directed FEMA or funded FEMA to provide long-term housing but it's increasingly becoming, you know, people talk about climate refugees and managed retreat. And I like to point out there isn't, isn't being managed and they are already being forced out of their communities uh, when these affordable properties get destroyed and what gets rebuilt, they can't afford. Well, let's talk about the, the future here. Um, you've mentioned that we need to, instead of scrambling to react after all the damage has been done, we need to look at it now and predict what's going to happen in the future. I'm going, to, I'm going to read a quote from you. You said, rather than look to the past, we need to model the future. Could you expound on that a little bit? If you look at most of how we have built our building codes, our floodplains, uh, even our response, we've always looked to the past and go, what's the last hundred years look like? And that's what we should be preparing for or building to. The problem is, it seems like at least monthly, we're seeing record-setting weather events. And only looking backwards isn't accounting for the fact that weather has changed. We're seeing rapid intensification of hurricanes is a measured uh, feature of what we're seeing from the climate impacts. We're seeing the extreme rainfall events, both tropical and non-tropical. Uh, we're seeing increased heat. We're seeing increased drought. You know, And as I point out to people, the climate's changed. We haven't. We're still building pretty much for the last 100 years worth of data. And that means that even new construction, especially when we talk about flood risk, is probably still going to be impacted in these rainfall events uh, because we're not changing that. We're still building slab on grade across entire swaths of the region. And people just can't wrap their heads around that, you know, you get two to three feet of rain that comes down in 24 hours. You're going to have water in a lot of homes and that damage is pretty significant. FEMA and other insurance groups calculate for about every inch of water. It's about $25,000 worth of damages. And the majority of people don't have flood insurance because somebody told them they weren't in a flood zone. And they think their homeowner's policy is going to pay, and it doesn't. And, and so imagine what that would do to the finances of homeowners that are getting hit with $25,000, dollars $70,000 repair bills, and they don't have insurance. 
You mentioned uh, technology is one way that we can kind of model the future. Um, you, you said we can granularly map cities block by block and kind of prepare for any anticipated storm event. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, please. Well, this goes to a question I've always had is why do we have to wait till a disaster to find out how bad it could be and what areas flood? And just like with Harvey and Houston, we knew the areas that would flood based upon the past. What we didn't know was what else is going to flood when you dump three and a half, almost four feet of rain into that basin. So one of the groups I work with, the company One Concern, we've been asking this question. What if we stop looking at probabilistic and past history to determine risk and just go, well, let's just take extreme events and have a slider and start with 12 inches, go to 24, go to 36 inches and start looking at the impacts to the community, looking at critical infrastructure. You know, I always marveled that we built a level one trauma center in Tampa Bay. Although they harden it, they have the generators elevated, a huge issue is going to be the hospital may survive the hurricane, but do the roads leading to it survive? And can you get ambulances in there? If not, that kind of negates that. And we don't usually know enough information about how much water starts to cripple the community, not just impact homes, but actually start crippling the response. You know, when fire stations are flooded, you know, water treatment plants or wastewater treatment plants are knocked out. And so that's what we try to do is look at these impacts, raise the level of the event. Don't look historically, just go, how sensitive is this community to flooding? You know, is it 12 inches we've got catastrophic? Is it, you have to get 24 inches. But then looking at what is happening in the dependencies on infrastructure, instead of just looking at a building going, well, if that's a major warehouse, the warehouse may be okay, but if the roads are out, it's, it's still not functioning. Right. You mentioned our level one trauma center, which is Tampa General Hospital, which is built on a spoil island in the middle of Tampa Bay, and the bridges going over it are prone to flooding, as is Bayshore Boulevard. Anybody familiar with that area knows it's probably not the best place to put a hospital. So. You know, in retrospect, are you looking at maybe raising the level of generators, raising the roads, that sort of thing in advance? Well, that's part of it, because if you just took Tampa Bay and you took the region and, you know, if you go back to the 21 hurricane, it hit all the way down from Manatee County all the way up in the Pasco inland. We're not going to be able to fix everything. Uh, we're not going to be able to elevate everything. But by using tools to model, what are the most vulnerable areas and what kind of projects make the most sense. Nature-based solutions are a good tool to use, but we're already built up. Now, that may not be possible. You know, what other things can we do? We're not going to be able to elevate every home in the region, but things like looking at key roads, key accesses to bridges, you know, key infrastructure. Can you keep that up and running and prioritize where you're going to make those investments? Craig, you mentioned the term climate refugees before. That's an interesting term. A lot of these natural disasters strike minority communities really hard because a lot of them are built in low-lying areas. And a lot of them, like you're saying, have no homeowner's insurance. So what can we do to, to help that situation at all? Well, I think we first got to recognize that is not just in isolation. It's almost every one of these storms. And we're seeing these forced migrations as historically black communities, uh, communities of color usually in older construction, because that's what they can afford, often in areas that are prone to the impacts of these storms, the low insurance uptake, many are renters. So you have absentee landlords or people who rent properties but don't have a lot of resources to make repair. And when these storms happen, we see the displacement. And this is the workforce. 
So when you start displacing your workforce, as much as it's been a challenge coming out of COVID finding workers, this even makes it worse. And what we tend to see, and, and this is, it's just an observation. When communities go to rebuild, they don't, their immediate thought isn't to do low income, affordable housing. Their immediate thought is increase the tax base and we see gentrification. So this term climate refugee was actually referring to third world nations that would be forced to migrate because of impacts and droughts and stuff. But to a degree here in the U.S., we're already seeing that people are being forced, displaced from their communities, not by choice, but because of the damage and the lack of affordable housing. And I, I think this is the key thing. Our programs that we currently have in the disaster programs are not addressing this issue. And it's causing a lot of hardship on residents who don't have an option. And then the impacts longer term, the communities will say, well, we're going to grow our tax base. You know, we're going to we'll rebuild better. We'll, well, your gentrification and you're displacing minorities and you're not addressing your rental issues and affordable property issues. And so you're forcing your workforce further and further away, which has, again, been showing to have extreme negative effects on economic growth. All this seems like the, the problems are really hard to overcome. Can we realistically do anything about it or is kind of doing a little bit at a time and, and whittling away at the problem? Well, I think there's some things that we could do in the short term. First one is to have a better strategy to try to save as many homes as we can that get damaged. And insurance and the FEMA programs are not really addressing this issue. FEMA doesn't have a lot of capacity to do stuff. But I'll give you an example. Uh, I was working on what we call rapid repairs. I said, it makes a lot more sense to go into a home that's been damaged in a storm that we can save and spend maybe $100,000 repairing it and getting people back in their home than to spending uh, $200,000 on bringing in a trailer, which is temporary for 18 months. And at the end of that, we have no solution. We were doing more and more of that. It kind of got dropped. But these are things that could help slow down that erosion. But I think we also have to get serious about what affordable housing looks like, what we can do to better focus in these vulnerable communities to uh, look at what we can do now to retrofit. But more importantly, look at how we rebuild and maintain communities and neighborhoods without the risk of gentrification. And that, that takes prior planning and also takes commitment from the political leadership of communities who many times will take the option of it's, it's they'll grow the tax base and that results in gentrification. And then they'll try to figure out affordable housing later. I mean, affordable housing in Tampa Bay is not an easy solution before a storm and it gets much harder after a storm. All right, Craig, anything else you'd like to mention and kind of summary, sum up of the problem or situation? Well, as much as we're talking about this, it, it always comes back to uh, reducing loss of life, and that's evacuation. We saw what happened with Hurricane Charlie when it was threatening to come to Tampa Bay, and that's why it's so critical that people plan before hurricane season to know where they're going, leave early, take their pets with you. Coming out of that region, if, if you just go to the worst traffic days that you can have out by the airport, and magnify that by a factor of 10. That's what evacuations look like. So, you know, first goal is always going to be safety. Get people to heat evacuation orders and go. Uh, but in Tampa Bay, you cannot hesitate and you need to know where you're going. The second thing is buy flood insurance. Too many people without flood insurance will have catastrophic financial losses, could end up losing their homes outside of the special flood risk area. And, and you're hearing a lot about FEMA rates are going up. The rates outside of the special risk area are still very affordable. We're generally talking for full coverage under 500. In most cases, it's close to $400 for protection against rising water. 
uh, which your homeowner's policy won't cover. So I think that's the other thing is have an evacuation plan, buy flood insurance. Hurricanes are not getting any better in our future. Uh, Craig Fugate is the former administrator of FEMA and was Florida's emergency management director for many years. Thanks so much for coming on Florida Matters. Well, thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. Our thanks to Craig Fugate and Brad Massey of the Tampa Bay History Center. You can find out more about the 1921 hurricane, as well as looking at some fascinating archived photos of the disaster, on our website, wusfnews.org. Our producer is Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters.